Welcome to another chapter of Saints and Sinners Unplugged. I am Pastor Ken Jones from Glendale Missionary Baptist Church, and I am joined by our regular co-host, Pastor Jose Prado from Christ City Church, Pastor Aldo Leon from Reconcile Church, and Pastor David Menendez from Tamiami Baptist Church. We are four local pastors here who fellowship in the gospel of grace, and we enjoy these uh, times together when we can discuss these things as, as it relates to... Uh, what we believe and and how we flesh this out at every level of our of our church experience. Over the past several weeks, we've been talking about first Luther's theology of glory versus the theology of the cross, and then we have talked about how the theology of the cl- the cross, the emphasis of it, is as Luther says, God reveals Himself in things that that veils the fullness of His glory from us, but He reveals Himself in the simple things. He has revealed his salvation through the birth of an infant. He communicates his grace to us, not through outward spectacular displays, but through simple things like bread and wine, through water. That's how God communicates. So we talk about God hidden. God reveals his power. He reveals his grace and his glory to those that he brings to a saving knowledge of himself, not in spectacular things, but in simple things. And that's what he means by God being hidden, or that's one of the ways he uses it. So in our discussion last week, we we talked about one of the reasons that it's difficult for us to comprehend uh, a theology of the cross is because a theology of the cross doesn't make sense to us. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because we have a different view, a a diminished view of anthropology. Anthropology. In other words, the doctrine of man, our view of man, which is reinforced by our fallen nature, the broader culture, as what because I want to I want to say this that bad anthropology at the level of the church is really the church not only listening to our fallen nature, but it's borrowing from the broader culture as to how we see man. So when we hear things, and I don't know how many times I've heard Christians say this, to err is human. No, it's not. To err is, is, is a fact of the fall, but that's Shakespeare, and that's Shakespearean thought coming into Christian theology. Well, no one's perfect. Yeah, someone is. You know, So we, I, I think we have allowed uh, various cultural influences to determine our view of man. So I often quote Billie Holiday, you know, the difficult I'll do right now, the impossible might take a little while. And that's what we think. So therefore, when the Bible demands perfection, we get to work on on becoming perfect. And in doing so, what we're doing is exalting fallen human nature and diminishing the pure grace of the gospel. So this anthropology or this diminished view of biblical anthropology also plays itself out at every level of the church. And I want to go back to the revivalism and the whole idea of um, the spectacular experience, the conversion, the big conversion experiences, as opposed to, well, you know, I, I heard the gospel preached and I heard someone say that I was a sinner, that I was condemned, and that Jesus was came into the world to live for my righteousness and die for my sins, and I believed it. And I believe that he was buried, and I believe he was raised on the third day, and I believe right now he's seated at the right hand of God. I believe that. So what do we say to that? What do we want? We want great stories that can be told about everyone having a Damascus Road experience. We want juicier details. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
you know the the whole thing with uh the golden calf i think is very representative <clears throat> we want yahweh to be visibly controllable and diminished by us because hearing yahweh speak you know we we what we can't we can't visualize that in some sort of diminished controllable way you know and so i think man's always wants to move away from hearing god speak about who he is and his hiddenness and revealed to us in christ and he always wants to move towards the visibility of things that he can mm. control manage and 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 reduce you know which is not just you know you don't have to make a golden calf <laughs> to do that there's many ways to you know to me like you know the people needing to fall on the floor right exactly or or or, or or hundreds of people needing to walk up and raise their hands. Yes. Like those are other ways that the the powerful presence of God must be visibly uh, experienced and diminished by me in order for me to actually think that he's, you know, enough. Otherwise... Well, see, that's you know, pr precisely my, my point, that these external displays have become part and parcel to either genuine a genuine move of revival or a genuine uh, experience of the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. as opposed to God communicating through ordinary means. Yeah. I actually preached I preached uh, on the the thorn of the flesh a few weeks ago, and I mean the thorn of the flesh, whatever it was, it was definitely something that was visibly and very practically debilitating. And what's amazing is that God. God deals with um, a very crippling thing by giving Paul six words. Hmm. Six words. My grace is sufficient for you. Yes. There is no visible ripping out of the thorn yes. or, or, or metaphorical ripping out of the thorn or, or some, you know, some parting of the Red Seas. It's just words about a historic Christ who is presently um, enough for Paul. And I'm just like, I, I was like, man, like what a... What an unimpressive thing, you know? Yeah. For us, and well, especially like in evangelicalism now. It's like, <laughs> man, like I, I had this really low moment and my marriage was a mess and, yeah. you know, and like, and <laughs> then like, you know, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for, for us. It, it came to me and, 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 and it revolutionized me. And we just like, come on, man, what kind of story is that, you know? Well, and, and this is what we see. I mean, people, we hear it all the time in evangelical circles. Well, what's your story? And I'm, I hate to sound cynical, but I yeah. am so tired of that. I, I will say, well, I'll tell you what my story is. I was a sinner. I am a sinner. I was born in sin. And I believe that Jesus lived for my righteousness and died for my sins. That's it. You want the details of my sin? No, thank you. I don't want to go. I don't want to deal with that. Uh, the, my story is that I'm a sinner saved by grace. Yeah. But when your story of faith, let's say the way, you know, people give their testimonies of faith, is looking only at the subjective story and has not apprehended the objective significance of the drama. Yeah. The objective significance, the doctrinal significance of the gospel with all the categories that, you know, we apprehend, you know, law and gospel and redemption and all of it then we're just left with a moral reformation. I, you know, mm. I've gotten out of a predicament, and God was there along the way to save me. He saved me out of this predicament, whether it was a health issue, whether it was an addiction issue. But look at Paul's testimony. 
you know, I was alive once without the law when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Yeah. How's that for a testimony? To then <laughs> convert and say, I am the first of sinners? Yeah. How's that for it? Where do we hear those testimonies today? We don't. We don't. We don't. Yeah. And I, I, again, this goes back to um, even at the level of our sanctification, and I would argue that for much of our of our churchmanship, we don't. We, we we are prone to a theology of glory at so many different levels that we and what we end up doing is depreciating the means where God actually appoints. It's, it's funny to me. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I don't, and I'm not judging people who do this or, or not, but let's say the invitation system where you open the doors of the church and you invite people to however it's done. You, you, you have an invitation. Do you know that people, if you don't do an invitation, people want you to explain it. Well, why don't you? Mm -hmm. And I've argued that, well, you don't see it, uh, uh, an invitation really introduced into the church into what, late, late 19th century? So, and certainly you don't see it in the Bible. So why is it that I have to defend something that the Bible doesn't call me to do, rather than the person that does offer an invitation, give a reason for it. Give a biblical, even if it's not a scripture and verse, Reason from the scriptures, but people want you to defend. You have to defend the simple proclamation of the gospel. Oh, well, yeah. how how are people going to be saved if you don't open yeah. the doors of the church? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I was I was preaching at a at this uh, place that like you know houses like drug addicted guys in Homestead, mm. um, and I just preached uh, preached from like a Pauline letter, um, and this guy comes up to me afterwards, and he's like, I have. I relapsed and I have forgotten and turned my back on God for years. And today mm. I have found him again. And you, he said, you didn't give an invitation and ask me to accept Christ, but I have found him. Will you pray with me? And it was just interesting um, because even though he was expecting that, he was still saying that I met God through the proclamation of Christ yes. in a in a letter of Paul to the Corinthians. And it was, that's that whole, um, faith comes by hearing yep. and hearing by the word about Christ. Like you present Christ to people, um, in a proclamatory setting, God shows up and he meets people. I don't have to necessarily, um, I mean, I don't have a problem with personal invitations. No, I I'm just saying that I have a problem with thinking that unless you, specifically provoke the will right to receive god or something that you haven't presented people with a an alternative a reality to to embrace yeah you know? it, the the assumption is that if you don't do that not not all that some people assume that if you don't do that then you're not giving people an opportunity to respond to the gospel and mm -hmm. if we believe that saving grace is irresistible i can't I, I'm not going to trust that my failure to extend an invitation is going to hinder them from receiving the gospel. I do think that my failure to preach the gospel yeah. will, will will do more damage than my failure yeah. to extend an yeah. invitation. But again, it goes back to that. I need I need I need visibility in order to feel <coughs> legitimate. So I, I need something 
tangible, not something verbal. Right. How, how much do you think that comes um, both from a high view of of the nature of man, you know, and also just a very low view of the gospel? I mean, Paul says in Romans one that, yeah. like the, the you know the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, you know, and 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 I feel so many times that you know preachers. Don't believe that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, even yeah. we've talked about this before. We talked about how how a sermon will be preached, and at the end of the sermon, people will say, you know, this doesn't matter unless you go afterwards and and apply it. And so I get where that comes from, but that that assumes something very profound mm-hmm. that when God is proclaimed. Um, to the congregation, there is no dynamic transaction between heaven and earth taking place. It only really becomes significant when people then go and it's almost like you get hit by a train and nothing really happened here until you go to, I don't know, you, yeah. you go do something else afterwards. That's why I think th- those two issues, uh, number one, the issue of the covenant, you know, and our federal heads, Adam and Christ, understanding that. Uh, and then the other issue of importance is the issue of assurance, because if that is not understood, that the promise that leads us to Christ is a promise that itself speaks assurance, then we're left in the first Adam or somehow with the first Adam's gimmicks to try and assure ourselves subjectively. Hmm. So the issue of, of the covenant, understanding that, you know, the two federal heads, that it is not my subjective doing by which I am received by God, but in the doing of Christ and through faith, I receive all of the worth and the righteousness of Christ. That calling of the gospel uh, itself that says come to Christ Hmm. speaks assurance. Yeah. But if we don't get that, then uh, the covenant becomes some type of a conditional covenant in addition to faith, also works. Hence, the only way that we can actually grab a hold of something that would tell me I'm saved is if I can see some darn works in me. Well, yeah. and, and to your point, Aldo, I, I, I think as ministers of the gospel, and this is, I, I don't know which came first in this instance, the chicken or the egg, whether or not ministers have lost confidence in the power of the preached word, yes, or if oh, they yeah. are simply mimicking a pattern that's <clears throat> been established by the church over the last 200 years or so, where the emphasis, and I'm going to say uh, the biggest, if, if the church is struggling in our generation, one of the biggest culprits is Charles Finney, and his fingerprints are all over that corpse and, and the weapon. But Finney's whole idea of the right use of means as being that which, you know, triggers anything in us. So I I think something that you said about not realizing that the preaching of the word is a divine transaction. I want to read something from Paul in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Powerful statement. He says, and we also thank God uh, constantly for this that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it as it, uh, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, 
which is at work in in you believers. Mm. Now, if the ministry, I mean, if if God is speaking through his word, then the ministry of the word is God speaking to his people. Mm. And Paul also says that God is efficaciously at work in all of those that he's speaking to through his word. So we don't need to add extra things and training wheels to it. Open up God's word. And this is why we all always emphasize the importance of law, gospel, and, and the right categories so that when we preach, we are preaching the gospel of God because it's through that gospel that God is calling unbelieving sinners to salvation and believing sinners to sanctification. But that's the, that's the key word right there, what you said, Ken. It's like emphasizing that distinction between law and gospel. And the yeah. problem is that when Paul says that you receive the word, many preachers would take that to mean that even when we receive the law, mm. okay, that, that the law itself is a, it's at work in us. And so uh, I'll mm. give you an example. Mm. We've, been, we've, been, uh, we've been preaching through the book of James, mm-hmm. right? And so here the book of James, I mean, we have all these... Mm. You know, all these commands and, 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 and all these ways in which he's showing us our, our fallenness or our worldliness. And for instance, in, in chapter, right before you get to chapter three, he says, live and speak as those who live according to the law of perf- the perfect law of freedom, mm. which is speaking of gospel. Mm. And so mm. live and speak as those who have believed, trusted. Yeah in the gospel and then he goes into chapter three and he's talking about you know how none of us can tame the tongue and even he includes himself and says we all fall in many ways when it comes to this but many preachers will take those texts about the tongue and they will say though james says that none of us can tame the tongue there's one that can jesus christ And so if you believed in him, then now you have the power because the word, you have the power now to tame your tongue. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I told, we were talking about this morning (laughs) and I was like that every, every, every text is owned by Jesus Christ, humanity Mm. first. So when James says no one can tame the tongue, the knee jerk response is not. Christ has the power to tame my tongue, but the spirit empowered Christ to have a human tongue of godliness that replaces my tongue. That's right. And that's that's that where living, I go first. That's that living for our righteousness that we yeah. alluded to. That's it. That's exactly and, and, it. And the more I appropriate the human divine Christ who spoke as a human as my replacement, the more... My tongue is tamed. Mm. But if I go right to uh, the taming the tongue by some divine assistance, yeah. then we strip ourselves from you know, really where that really comes from. We're not assisted by coming to grips with how much we could be better. We're assisted right. by coming to grips with the power of, of replacement. Yeah, and, in, and, and, and recognizing the, the utter yeah. fault of our tongues and therefore dying you know which, being crucified again which at the very practical subjective level is the only way to really be free yeah because uh, i need to be free of the fear 
that my tongue is going to condemn me. Right. So that my tongue then will begin to speak, not out of necessity, not out of compulsion, but freely. Yes, out of gratitude. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, slander comes from a necessity to justify ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And so if we have a vacuum in... So what is a practicality of this? A practicality is that the fruit of love, love does not seek its own. So if somehow you out of fear are seeking something out of God by your own obedience, then that is not love. Love love. does not seek its own. And to both what what, uh, you were saying, David, as well as Jose in expounding the passage from James, but isn't one of the purposes in in James expounding the dangers of the tongue is so that we can see that our with our self-righteous selves that's right that we can see that at the very level of our tongue that's us that we can see that where that condemnation and it's only as we see that it has been set on fire from hell Mm -hmm. that we will cry out in mercy and recognize that there is one who has Mm -hmm. spoken yeah and, and has used his tongue to the glory of god and that righteousness is credited to me so now my responsibility or my response to that is to speak like one whose tongue has been purged and set free that's right that's right so even when we get to chapter four where you know where james is saying brothers do not speak evil against your brother yeah for when you speak evil against your brother when you when he says when you um when you judge right. and you criticize right. your brother, right. you are judging the law of God. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know? And so really, I mean, that whole text, it's not about us coming to that text and saying, okay, I'm going to try as hard as I can not to slander anyone. Because the reality is if I do that, man, I, I, sw- I, I listened to that sermon and I went out to church talking to my wife and I found myself slandering someone. In wow. the car, yeah. Sure. And I looked yeah. at my wife and said, yeah. "I'm just doing. I'm doing right now yeah. <laughs> what the very word of God yeah. <laughs> was talking about." But the whole point that He points that out for us is for us to see that when we are slandering and criticizing and judging, that just reveals my yes. heart, and my heart is a self-righteous. I am judge. Yes. God is not judge. I've removed God out of the way. I place myself as judge, mm-hmm. and and that's really the 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 gins of it. Yeah. So. When we go back to Paul saying that the word of God is at work in us, we yes. need to understand that that word that he's talking about is the gospel. The word of the gospel. The word yes. of the gospel is at work yes. in us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is shorthand for law and gospel. Law and yeah. gospel. Because yeah. we're being judged right. Right. in order yeah. to be attached I, to the one. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, the, 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 law, the law can tell us as to what righteousness looks like, and we need that. I think we need that. Sure. It's just it cannot, it cannot produce... It's either originally, forensically, practically, you know, it's always going to, you know, it's always going to bring us to somebody else. Yeah. No, that's, that's it. Uh, Wow. This, the law can tell us what we ought to do, but if we see it clearly, it tells us what we haven't done. That's right. But the reason, as David, you were saying, we need not just law, gospel distinctives, but in the proclamation of the gospel, we are showing what the law has required and the price that has been paid for our failure. The good news is the condemnation of the law has been met in Christ and the righteous standard of the law has been given to us in Christ. We look forward to joining you again next week. Thank you.